Where do we get our answers? Where do we, as collectors, truly learn new information about the films and memorabilia that has left such indelible marks upon our minds, our hearts, our lives, and our imaginations? Where do we, ones obsessed with the universe a restless George Lucas spoke into existence, get our answers about that era, long past but passionately remembered? How do we, as historical orphans with no official guidebook, learn about Kenner and the creatives behind many of the toys we played with as children, ones that morphed into icons and artifacts of nostalgia we now collect as adults? The answer is found on the other side of the bridge. Over the decades, collectors, our peers, cross that bridge to the past in an effort to bring us answers. As archaeologists, they unearth fossils, many of their origins unknown. Through research and conversations with those who worked on the films and the toys, they slowly connected each puzzle piece to form a larger, more vibrant picture. They asked themselves and one another, what is it and how did it get here? Why does it exist? And where in the Star Wars timeline does it fit? They cross that bridge again and again, pulling newspaper clippings long forgotten, advertisements from catalogs and flyers, Kenner's company records, and employee notes. They poured over images, focusing on details most would miss. They processed anything they could find. Clues began to surface from seemingly insignificant blurbs. Because if you looked hard enough, the answers were there. And they brought these ideas back in story form, like R2-D2 recounting generations of adventures to the keeper of the Journal of the Wills. They continue to build upon the fragments their fellow collectors have recorded, and the puzzle image expands. Certain areas come into focus, and from them, new questions arise. And it's back across the bridge to delve into that rich and unexplored past in joyous pursuit of further answers. For more than 20 years, Ron Salvatore has been one of those explorers, a writer with a curiosity that burns bright, recording his finds and articles on the Star Wars Collector's Archive. This is a conversation about how a collector shapes these stories to share with others. This is part one of a look at the topics Ron covered this year in the articles he wrote. This is an exploration of what are likely the earliest Star Wars figures created, one of the rarest and most interesting Kenner pieces ever produced, and the impact other collectors have on the rest of us. This is one of the best parts of being a collector. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Yes, master. Yeah. Well, 
stand and fight. The more you tighten your grip, darling, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. The Force will be with you. Always. Collecting often reminds me of a picaresque exploit. You never know what roads the hunt will lead you down, or what strange discoveries await you at the end of those roads. But if you have a good friend at your side, you'll never be disappointed with either your discoveries or your destination. Those are not my words, but they're ones I wish I had written. Because I feel that sentiment so strongly. It's really the essence of the collecting journey many of us take. In that beautifully crafted paragraph, one that opens an article from March of this year, titled Adventures in Miniatures, Ron Salvatore captures what collecting has become for most of us. In covering the history of Star Wars prototypes and memorabilia, Ron has researched and crafted articles for the website The Star Wars Collector's Archive and its long-form companion blog. His posts are not the kinds that we see on most sites, regurgitating the news of the week. Instead, Ron seeks to solve the unanswered questions, to fill in the clouded gaps on the map. After all, one of the charms of collecting is that the hobby constantly asks us to put in the work. Our understanding does not come from an official Kenner book published decades ago, or a definitive resource. Our fellow collectors retrieved the information and built the foundation of the knowledge we have today. It's an empowering and exciting thought that you and I could play a direct role in helping to tell these stories about the items and the world we love. I've been reading Ron's work for as long as I've been a serious collector. I've learned so much from him over the years. And if I could be honest with you, many of us look up to Ron. He is thoughtful in his approach to collecting, and he has carried a consistent curiosity about the world of vintage Star Wars for decades. And as a result, he's produced interesting content that has taught others, including myself, and he shares that information freely. In the first half of this year, he published two in-depth articles. The first was a look at Kenner's participation in the Junior Achievement Program, which produced Star Wars-related items that may not be on most collectors' radars, but they're some of the rarest Kenner-related items in existence. The second was a story that helped to identify and tell the history of a set of mysterious unlicensed metal miniatures that were very likely the first Star Wars figures ever created. Today, I'd like you to join me for a conversation with Ron about these stories and his approach to writing and researching. And like Ron said before, if you have a good friend at your side, you'll never be disappointed with either your discoveries or your destination. We'll be here for a while, so grab your favorite beverage and something to eat, and let's discover the world of Star Wars together. So I know you have a number of pieces in your collection that have been in there for a long time. Do you have any right now, though, one or two that really stand out or that you've developed an appreciation for recently? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the curses of having a, a fairly extensive collection is that when people ask that question, it's always it leaves you at a loss. Um, uh, things I really enjoy in my collection. One of the things I love is my. I have a the only I guess complete outfit for the the Luke uh, X Wing pilot, the the large size figure, um, the unreleased X Wing pilot outfit, and it's complete in the sense that it has like the bib as well as the control box on the chest, which is handmade. And then it has a handmade helmet. Um, and as far as I know, there's no other ones that have those pieces. So it's basically the only one that looks like a proper X-Wing outfit. Um, and I've had that for 20 years or so. And that, that's one of my favorite items that I have for sure. Um, you know, other stuff, um, you know, one of my favorite things in my collection is a scrapbook that was put together by a single collector, a, a woman um, who actually lived in um, George Lucas's hometown. And she collected for a period of, you know, 10 years or so, every single ad related to Star Wars in her local paper. Um, and that, that's a real favorite of mine just because I, I love advertising and especially like ephemera stuff that would have been thrown away. And the fact that it's connected to this one person and you can sort of get a sense of her, you know, activity over that period is, is really special to me. And I bought it directly from her. So and that, that's a really special item for me as well. I'm dying to see it. And I've been to your house a number of times and I keep forgetting to ask you uh, if I can see it, if I can look through it. Um, yeah. So I have to do that at some point. Sure. I'll remind you, you know, it's, it's one of those things that pretty much everyone gets lost in as soon as they open it because they start flipping through it. And it kind of, the, the narrative quality of it, I guess, is what's compelling because it takes you from, you know, this late seventies right through the end of it. And so you get a whole sense of the history of the line told through the advertising, which is, is really fun. So I'm sure you'll enjoy looking at it. Oh, I can't wait. And have you used it for writing and research when you've been working on Star Wars articles? Um, yeah, absolutely. I've used it here and again. A lot of times people will message me with questions saying like, Hey, I'm trying to figure out when this item was first released, you know, or when this first hit stores. And obviously people are surprised that sometimes or usually newer collectors are surprised that that collect that information isn't readily at hand. Like, well, you know, right. nobody knows. So the only way to really assess it is to go through advertising. So you can kind of search through an archive like that and be like, okay, well, here's the, the, the first time that I see in an ad, the, the, the Yoda hand puppet, you know, or something like that. And so you can sort of kind of get a decent sense of when it hits stores through that. So yeah, I use it and, and I've used it for my own stuff as well. Um, uh, I, as you probably are aware, and I, I'm always, you know, cautious about sounding like I'm being a braggart or something, but I probably have the most extensive collection of like catalogs and advertising related to the Kenner star Wars line. And that's just because I'm like a, a research nut basically. And yeah. <laughs> I use it all the time for things I've written. Like, you know, it, you know, just to go, Oh, I, I need a picture of this item or I need to understand like how this was marketed X, you know, and all those catalogs and stuff really, really come in handy when you're trying to answer those kind of questions. I could see why, you know, and, and as you said, like there, you've said this in the past, there really wasn't a, um, a guidebook for all of us. There isn't a, a book that came out about Kenner that we've had since the seventies or eighties. And a lot of our friends, uh, including yourself have had to 
piece together this information from things like advertisements and from um, you know items procured from from Kenner employees and just anything that we can get our hands on, and that's how we've built up a, a database. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, that's a, that that's absolutely correct. Um, I think now there's still some vague areas where people aren't sure about certain things, but man, when I got into collecting, there was a whole lot of stuff that people didn't really understand. Like even variations, all this stuff has been built up over time, you know, by just collectors being industrious and trying to document it. So, um, you really see that when you're in the hobby for a long time and, uh, the internet really kind of put it into overdrive because you can share that stuff in real time just about, whereas back in the day, like, forget it you know if it wasn't in a book or something it was not around so you know what you say is accurate yeah i I feel like the knowledge we have about star wars collecting has really been built up by collectors over the last 30 years in particular yeah and it seems to be that that central hub was the star wars collector's archive uh, which we know as the archive um i first came to know you through your writing for the archive. That, that's really how I met you before we actually met in person and became friends. Um, so I know that you've been a, a part of it for a long time. Can you describe the site and and how you became a part of it? Oh, yeah. Um, it was 97 that I first got involved. And it was, you know, through the generosity of, of Gus, who's, you know, always been really generous in, in allowing collectors to uh, contribute to the archive. And I think that was his real his vision about it was, you know, it was basically a hub for people to share their collections and, and whatnot. Um, and, and Chris Dragulius, it was probably the guy who suggested it to Gus. Um, and Gus Lopez. to Gus. Yeah. Sorry. Gus Lopez. I, Gus Lopez is the, the, the guy who started the uh, archive. I think he was still working towards his PhD in computer science in Seattle at the time when he set up the archive and you're talking about 94 when most people had never even used the world wide web. Right. So it has been around since 1994. And for a long time, it was basically Gus and Chris who were editing it and they were just kind of throwing up stuff that they took photos of and that that's people sent them. Um, and so I was like the third person, I think John Wooten maybe involved mostly on the tech side before that, or maybe Chris Nichols, but I was more or less like the third editor to be brought on board to, to mess around with it. Um, and it was completely at that time, just hand jammed HTML. So each page had to be written by hand in HTML code, <laughs> uploaded, tested. Um, and like I said, back then, even looking at a photo on the internet was a novelty. Uh, I don't know if people, I'm sure people, people our age probably remember that, but younger people might not even be aware of what it was like. Um, and just to give you some context, when I first heard of the archive, I was on Usenet, which had the, um, you know, the, the vintage star Wars. I don't even think it was a vintage star Wars group at that point. It was just in star Wars collecting maybe. Um, but it, Usenet was like a, message board where you could, and it was basically, it was uncensored. All, you, all the stuff you hear about now about all the censorship on, on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like this was just, you could go on there and just be the biggest troll and say anything and no one could do anything to you really. <laughs> Not that that was a positive, but just to give you a sense of what it, what it was. I mean, it's just like anyone could go on there and start posting stuff. So it was like all sorts of stuff. Um, but it was text-based pretty much. And I do remember Gus, I think, announcing that the Star Wars Collectors Archive was launching. And this is probably 94 or maybe soon afterwards, 95. Um, 
because updates would be posted there and I could not figure it out. Like I would click on it and I'd be like, how do I get to this part of the internet? And then I'd ask somebody <laughs> and they would say, you need to download a browser. And I'm like, a brow- what is a browser? And then I realized my computer wasn't par- powerful enough to run whatever the browser was at that time. You know, it was just like completely, you know, different world from where we are right now. Um, and that's, that's how far back the website goes. You know, it's to Gus's credit that he had the, the vision that this would be a, a viable thing. Um, and, you know, a few years later, the collectibles websites or like websites sharing information about like toys and stuff became like a thing. And the archive was one of the earliest ones. And Star Wars websites was another big thing. It seems like every other website back then was Star Wars related, all of them with like a, a Starfield background to the main page. <laughs> um, so that was really at the forefront of that. But, yeah, it was it was a few years later, maybe two to two and a half to three years later that. I was brought on to, to help out with that stuff. And uh, to your point, as I blab away here, um, yeah, I do think as far as the internet goes, like that was the main source of information on vintage Star Wars, especially about prototype stuff, because that was the main thrust of a lot of the, the stuff. I think Gus and Chris were particularly excited about that aspect of things, and they had met people like Steve Denny and they and Tom Nyheisel and they'd gone to Cincinnati once, um, I think in 95. And they took a bunch of photos of Steve Denny's collection and, and Tom Nyheisel's collection, like really bad photos. Some of them are still up there. You could be like, why is this lousy photo? It's just because someone took a photo, <laughs> scanned it with like a primitive scanner and uploaded a low resolution image to the internet. Um, but that was just awesome. Like you could like, just to see the stuff that Steve Denny and Tom Nyheisel had, from your from your home, you know, just by clicking on links was like really something. Um, but yeah, I, I think that anybody who was internet native at that time, and it did seem like a lot of the fun stuff happening in the collecting world was was happening in the internet. Like I ended up getting probably sucked into the archive at one time or another and seeing something there that they hadn't seen before. So I, I think it made an impression on people, you know, myself included, before I started contributing. Did you reach out to Gus or did Gus reach out to you as far as uh, being a contributor? Uh, the way I remember is I knew Gus and Chris and had become friends with them just from bouncing emails. And I'm pretty sure like I had probably at that point, it was all email. It sounds funny now because email seems so like clunky, right? Like we want to do instant message. This is before we weren't using, I wasn't using an instant message app or anything. It was Chris and I would email like, I did this with multiple collectors, Gus included probably just like multiple times a day. There'd just be emails going back and forth, just whatever. And I think Chris was like either impressed with my level of interest or something and recommended it to Gus. And I think those guys reached out to ask if, if I wanted to help them out. And that's how I remember it. Um, So when you, when you started then, um, how did you, how did you get involved in, in writing for it? What were you covering at the time? <laughs> David, there was nothing. There was nothing so clear cut as like an org chart or a hierarchy. It was just anything you wanted, right? So I mean, but I was like, at that time, what was I doing? I was t- I had left my first college, and I was basically kind of supporting myself. I was living with my parents, so supporting myself is the wrong word. But I, I was making money for collecting by basically like being a dealer. You know, I was like, and I also had 
kind of made and sold a bunch of custom things and, you know, and on the use, use groups. So, um, that's kind of what I was doing. And so I had plenty of time, you know, Chris had her job probably <laughs> at that point and Gus was, he, he was working and I think he was also still in school. Um, so I, I had a lot of time to mess around with stuff. So I, I became notorious for like devoting a lot of time to things. Um, and I think, uh, geez, one of the first things I can't remember. I mean, I just remember just, I'd be like, Oh, this store display isn't, there's no entry for this. So I'd go take a picture of it and start messing with it. Um, but I, I want to say my, the thing that I became more interested in was kind of longer, um, more contextualized pieces because the archive, as people might be aware, it's like, it was like little entries. So it would be like, here's a picture of like the, the, the SSP van set and there'd be a description, you know, and sometimes the description would be, this is a SSP van set released by Kenner and that would be pretty much it. Right. And then the other times whoever was doing the entry would feel compelled to add to that for whatever reason. So the entry could be longer and longer, but if you wanted to like tie together multiple items, like do like a thing on puzzles or something, you know, like there wasn't really a, a way to do that. So kind of the, the thing that I spearheaded was called like the special feature. And that was basically like a area of the website that would, that was more focused on articles. And, uh, and I became more, more and more interested in that just because I think that's kind of where my mind goes. And I'm also just kind of a, I'm kind of a writer at heart. It's like the only thing I'm particularly good at is probably writing. So, um, I ended up just wanting like, Oh, I'd, I'd like to write an article about this, you know, and I'd like it to be on the web. Um, so everyone can ac- access it. And that wasn't really the format of the site. It wasn't really conducive to that. So that special feature thing kind of grew out of that. Um, and so that, that became one of the more popular things on the site, you know, with other people started doing it as well. You know, I Gus did a bunch, you know, that were like charts of like various cereal boxes where you could see everything released and stuff like that. And, and my original idea was to have it be a place where people could contribute articles, like other knowledgeable collectors, like to edit other folks' content and put it up. But with the exception of maybe Pete Vilmer, that never really worked out. Like, and I just discovered that that's kind of harder than you'd think, like asking someone. People express interest, but they never get around to writing the article, which is fine. That's just kind of one of the things about life. But, um, but Pete contributed a bunch of stuff, and I, I think I gave Pete a his own special section um, uh, to write stuff, and it was called Relics of the Outer Rim, I think, and he wrote several things before that kind of fell by the wayside. I think he ended up getting more busy with other stuff. But anyway, my, my interest was more in like articles and stuff like that that kind of tied multiple things together, uh, and I spent a lot of time working on various things. You know, there, there was – Stuff on the Women's Day play sets that got a lot of traction. Um, there was an article I did on like concept models. There was one that got a lot of traction that was on recycled toys that I think got reprinted. Like some of these things got reprinted in various magazines as well later on, like Action Figure News, I think, did some of them. Um, oh, that's great. So, I didn't realize that they had, they had translated to uh, print media as well. Yeah, a few of them did. Um, I want to say Gus had worked out some kind of deal with Lenny Lee at 
action figure news where a few of those things, you know, some things Gus wrote and some things I wrote got ported over to, I mean, we didn't pay us anything really. <laughs> it may have been like 50 bucks <laughs> or something, but uh, it was like, okay, sure. You, it's cool. Cause you see it in the magazine. But the funny thing about that, and I learned this pretty quickly was that it's always been prestigious, I guess, to like say like, Oh, I have a magazine article and I, I've probably had 10 articles or whatever put in star Wars magazines, various magazines. Um, but those come and go, right? Like you said, you, you weren't even aware. Like if something was in action figure news or even Star Wars Galaxy Collector 20 years ago, nobody knows about it anymore. Like Chris Julius might remember it, but most people aren't aware of it. If it's on the internet, that thing's out there forever. And you'd be surprised, man, that people are aware of these things. Even like this janky looking old website from like 1999, that has such traction. Like you know, thousands and thousands of people have seen it and they still refer to, I still see people post pictures and, and snippets from those pieces on Facebook and eBay, like, you know, decades later, which you'd never get that lifetime out of a magazine article. Um, oh, you're absolutely right. And for me, yeah. um, when I started collecting, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything about the hobby. Um, this was probably around 2011. And I just, the, you know, I think I typed, Star Wars or, or Star Wars toys into into a browser, and that became my my search engine. Um, and really, I, I think I landed on you know the the archive. And that for me, every night I was I would sit down and you know I've said this multiple times, but I, I would sit down for anywhere from twenty minutes to an hour right before I went to sleep, and I would read as many entries as I could. Um, it's funny that you brought up the special features section because I, I think. The website uh, for me was was a little more difficult to navigate because I didn't. There wasn't any sort of through line. It was there, there oh, were so yeah. many. So special when I saw spe- uh, the special features section, it was a number of articles with descriptions next to the name, so I knew what I was getting into. And a lot of it was you know really fresh and new and exciting at the time too. So I think that I probably exhausted that section first and then started to go deeper into the archive. So yeah. I was a reader early on, and I, I can really say too that this podcast and you know a lot of the stuff that I, I've done in collecting is due to what you guys did for the archive. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. Um, I definitely can sense that other people feel that way too, and it's it's really gratifying to think that you've had an impact on on people. You know, not just me, but the other people who contribute to the site. Um, and yeah, it's. I guess one of the things that I've done in my life that people um, remember and care about and including just a lot of people you wouldn't even, the people I don't know, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing. I got a email from a a lady, this is a year and a half ago, two years or something. And just a nice woman. And she's just like, Hey, my husband is like a giant fan of your writing has been reading your stuff since the nineties. I'm trying to get him a Christmas present. Do you think I could buy like a magazine from you that has an old article in it. And I was like, guys, like you could have multiple copies. Of them. <laughs> I'll send you whatever you want. I mean, and this is someone I've never heard of, you know, like someone I don't know. So it's like, like, I hate to say a fan, but somebody appreciator out there who I don't even know. It's not like it's, you know, like Matthias Rendall. It's just some guy, you know, and it's like, well, some guy in Idaho, wherever he is, has been reading my stuff and cares enough about it that his wife is going to buy him a Christmas present. Um, so stuff like that is, is pretty gratifying and all from just 
I don't want to say silly stuff, but you know, trivial stuff posted on the internet, right? Years and years ago, right? And it's out there and, and people care about it. Um, but I think it's because a lot of the content was good and not just my content, but that was one of the, I guess, hallmarks of the Star Wars Collector's Archive as Gus Gus started it. Because, you know, Gus is probably the, the best collector out there. You know, he's got the best collection and he's just one of the best collectors in terms of taste and being ahead of the curve. And he's obviously just a really smart guy. So the content was always just very, very sharp and very smart, you know, and Chris is a smart guy and a very good collector. It was always ahead of the curve in what was good, you know, what was worth explaining. Like nobody knew anything about like hard copies and first shots. Like all this stuff was just like new stuff. I mean, all that stuff was just broke. And I had a collector, uh, I think it was Ben Sheehan, who's a good friend of mine um, a while back. Who's just like, cause he's been working on various books about prototypes and whatnot. He's just like, you know, I went back through a lot of that stuff. And he's like, there's some stuff that's wrong or some stuff that's, you know, a little bit like we know more about it now than you did then. But he's like, for the most part, like that was like incredibly accurate for these guys in their twenties who were just like going out and talking to employees and coming back and like speculating about how these things fit into various, various processes and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I agree with Ben, like there's a, we did a pretty good job for, for kids basically, uh, kind of turning up new stuff and, and breaking new ground with things. But I think that's what people came to respect about it was that it wasn't just run of the mill items, right? Like, like you wouldn't go there just to see a 12 back. And, and it, actually the site became notorious for like, why don't you guys just have like all the 12 backs? It's like, Oh, cause we all were bored. With that. Like that was, that was boring. Like it was way more cool to go find some unproduced Gargan figure and put that cause that had not really hardly been seen. Right. Or to describe to someone what a soft cop coin soft copy was, which was a term that was invented by, I think Chris Fawcett and you know, the whole community there. Um, but you know, I think that that level of, specificity and like the research quality of it and the novelty is really what made people care and, and, and pay attention to it. You know, it was just different than anything you'd get anywhere else. And and that's also, so the two things that I loved about it was the, the quality and, and the, the, the level in writing. Um, and, and, you know, also your ability and the ability of, of others that were working on the site to be able to translate this stuff for us, like for your average collector, um, and and to to provide context around you know these items and and these these treasures and, and gems, um, some that have that you know were widely known, and then some that people had never seen you know within our community. Um, I, I, so I found that fascinating, and I also found it fascinating that. It was really, I mean, I can say now that it's my friends who put this together. At the time, I, I didn't know any of you, but um, but it wasn't like somebody from Kenner had come out with a definitive book, and then that became the Bible for collectors for the next few decades. This was this was a site that was put together by collectors, and and you guys were really updating it as you were stumbling upon these finds or as you were digging deeper into the, the pieces and items that you had or meeting with different employees. So all of that made it really exciting. And I know for me, I remember sitting and going through these entries and these articles and my, my wish really, my prayer was that one day I would be able to have some sort of 
you know, play some sort of role in, in contributing to the knowledge and, and the community. And that's really where this podcast stemmed from. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. You know, it, it certainly like we've been discussing, like, I think the hobby as it stands today would be nothing without collectors putting the effort into the websites and the podcasts and, and all that stuff and the books too. Absolutely. Um, you know, like and it makes just, it fun, you know, to, to know that, you know, an article comes from, from you and not, not somebody that, you know, someone that, that was, was paid to do it as part of their job or, um, you know, somebody who had, had worked at Kenner, I think is even more exciting because again, it's like our, our friends are making this happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt. You know, that what you said is, is accurate and you certainly, it doesn't take long to, uh, kind of meet most of the players for lack of a better right. word in in the hobby who have contributed a lot and most like i know you and i discussed this a couple days ago on the phone it's just um most of the people who are known quantities of you know move, i don't know how do i say it without sounding like a a d-bag movers and shakers or you know massive contributors to the knowledge base of the hobby are, are great people like I, I there's not that many jerky people which is amazing, you know, going all the way back, Steve Sansweet's a gem of a guy who's completely not, you know, elitist or jerky and pretty much all the folks associated with the archive and and other people of similar bent are mostly good people. So it's, it's, it's a great community. You know, it's, it's not hard to actually meet and get become friends with all the people who um, have done a lot of this work. Yeah. It's, it's been a nice experience and it's, for me, it's been a, a rare experience where the people that that are in our circles and that you know we're friends with um, are the ones that are the contributors and are the you know creators or the uh, to use the word again the, the translators of of this hobby uh, in in a lot of ways and and uh, it's nice to also see that you know we can all kind of build upon information uh, and and do things like panels and articles and books and, and media so. Um, I know you've been working on this, you know, for a while doing, doing the entries. Um, when did the blog come about? Because the blogs for a number of years, the blog has been a really important part to the website. Right. I would say, yeah, it's been, um, the most active component of the, the website or the network or what you want to call it, you know, for a while that, and, and the Kivecast podcast that Sky Payne and Steve Danley do. And I think it's just because it's, it's because it's my favorite, you know, I'd rather do articles, right? So I end up contributing a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons it's been more active, but um, it's also just very hard to update the the regular site. You know, it's just a real pain. Not that that's a great excuse, but, um, but the genesis of it was actually Sky Payne's idea. Um, We were driving down to South Carolina for ice for a collecting event in South Carolina. I think it was 2014, either 13 or 14. And he had been the one to push it. And I was like, I'm, I was already in, been involved with other blogs, non-Star Wars blogs. And so I was like, I'm not, I'm fine with the blog. I, but how to combine it with the, the archive was a different, I, I didn't really understand, you know, his vision for that, but it was a good idea on Sky's part. Um, and, and it was like, well, on the main page should, you should be able to click it and, it should jump off to the podcast and it should jump off to the blog. I was like, Oh, okay. I, I guess that makes total sense. <laughs> I didn't even thought about that. Cause I was thinking like, okay, there's a blog, but how does it interface with the website? So 
um, Sky's brother, Barth, um, did a lot of the tech stuff behind the scenes to get it to work correctly. So credit to him. Um, but it's been since I think 2014, which is almost, it's almost 10 years. And that's just really frightening to me because it doesn't feel like 10 years. Um, but yeah, I, it's 10 years, but yeah, it, it was a great idea. And it's, there's been a lot of good stuff posted there. Um, it's, as we discussed, it's very difficult for me to get a grasp on, the impact and it's all that's always been the case with the archive though i think in the early days when most of the discussion was usenet related like you could get a good grasp on it because you knew your audience was these people who are on usenet and they would and you would see chatter and there'd be 10 to 15 comments about new entries or whatever nowadays it's sort of on facebook and stuff gets dumped like the the blog post links get dumped out there and there'll be some comments and sometimes there's not many at all. And it's very hard for me to know what kind of if people are reading it or what kind of impact it is. You know, the hardcore people will, you know, Jonathan McElwain will tell me he read it, but I, I don't really know if Joe collector is reading it. It's very difficult for me to get a beat on that. Um, but it's out there. You know, I, I think there's whether or not it's a popular success. I think that the content has been really good over the last eight years or whatever it's been. If I had never been on the blog before and I wanted to check it out, what kind of articles and items would I find on it? Oof. It's evolved, you know, like all blogs and all websites that have multiple contributors. You know, I've learned this over the years. There was a lot more variety and sort of uh, a lot more content early on. But then as things, as time goes on, like, people you ask to contribute generally either they run out of ideas or they just kind of become bored with it. And so I would say early on, there was a much more variety. Um, I'll say like Amy Schoberg, who was one of the bloggers did a bunch of stuff about swag, which was really fun, which, you know, I'm notorious. Like some, it's kind of a false characterization, but everyone knows me as the guy who hates swag, but um, <laughs> I actually do find it to be a, uh, a fascinating little cultural thing connected to collecting and um, I, I liked Amy's articles focusing on that because it was just kind of cool. Like this is a really kind of in the moment ephemeral thing that someone is documenting. Um, Tommy Garvey used to do posts on like updates on new news, like every couple of weeks or whatever, like new. And that was kind of fun. You can go back to look at those early ones and just see what was going on on a week to week basis, like in terms of breaking news. He did a great piece. Um, where he took his Kia Mole run, which was a, an unproduced character from the droids line, and he right. showed the process of how, uh, from concept essentially to collectible, how uh, the Kia Mole figure became a toy. Um, and he, yeah. he did it very in-depth. I, I thought that one was great. Uh, there was a, a 2D and a 3D interview, um, and I, I might be the only one that you guys ever did, but um, uh, it was with Tim Eckold. And it was split into two parts. One part was his 3D collection and one part was his 2D collection. And he's an amazing collector with just, you know, draw dropping pieces, pieces that (laughs) highlights in any collection. And I I just, you know, those were really nice to see. Yeah. Well, I think that might've been Pete Fitzke. Did he do that one? I think so. Um, Yeah. I had asked Pete to do um, a series on just spotlighting collections. Cause that's like an easy one. Like not, not easy to write or anything, but just like, as far as a topic goes, like 
what do collectors like to see? It's like, well, I'd like to see an in-depth review of this guy's collection, which I've never seen in person. You know, it's just, you know, pick collectors and interview them about their collections, you know, and he, he did a number of those. And I think that's, that's on there. So that's really fun to see. Um, Pete has also done a bunch of market updates. So things related to like auctions and AFA and what things are selling for, which is kind of like interesting for me because it's just outside of the scope of what I usually pay attention to. Um, you know, he's good at that. And, uh, there's been a lot of other did stuff. did a great you know, job with that. Yuda Kleiman's done a bunch of good stuff. Kevin Lentz has done a, a bunch of stuff on things that he's interested in collecting. You know, he's, a, he's a solid writer. I always like editing his stuff. Um, you know, he's done, um, things on, you know, book and record or, you know, I don't know how, what, what the term is, but recorded content related to storybook stuff, you know, uh, and that those are fun to see, like going back to, to, to Pete Vilmer with the archive back in the nineties when he did his relics of the outer limb, I've always been interested in getting collectors to write things on these underserved areas of the hobby, you know, like, so if you collect star Wars paper clips from Indonesia or something like, please write an article on it. Cause I, I don't know much about it. Um, the, the toys, you know, even though that's my main focus, cause that's what I collect, you know, people know a lot about that. So finding the, the nuggets that people are unaware of that are going to make good arguments, articles is pretty tough but if you collect some like out of the way thing like that it's just ready made for some article and if you could write a little bit you know that helps as well um and jonathan McElwain's done a number of stuff like that, things like that where he, he discovers something interesting like he's good at that like he has a nose for um finding like oh this you know stamp history of this stamp thing that was released it was related to star wars like postage stamps and he noticed like there's two or three things that he can tie together and probably no one has thought about this, but him, like, that's a good article. Like you could write, you know, a decent little article on that. And, you know, Jonathan's been really good with that. So he's done a number of things over the last few years that I've liked a lot. I'm sure I'm forgetting someone that's going to be like, Hey, you forgot that. Um, <laughs> but just to go back to sec- just a second to talk about Tommy's thing very briefly, his key and all thing. One of the nice things about that, and it ties into our earlier discussion is that really that was Tommy taking all of the stuff that he learned reading the archive in other disparate places on the website and kind of putting it together into one post. So that's kind of an example of what we talked about with some of the knowledge that came out of the, the archive in general and Tommy's kind of pulling it together. And, and I'm sure most of that stuff that he learned from reading the archive, right? So when you create your articles, how do you choose a topic to cover? Oh, that's a good question. I've thought about it a little bit. Um, I just get like a kind of an excitement in my in my brain about something. Um, I guess, again, not to toot my own horn, but I guess one of the things I'm good at is kind of just sussing out like what is going to make a good story. Or And this is going back to um, the old style archive stuff. It's just like, I'm it's steeped enough in collecting to know like what, what has been covered and what hasn't. Cause I've pretty much read it. Like I've experienced it all. So I, I know like, okay, this has never been discussed. Right. Or this is an item that has not been talked about or, and that's something I'm aware of. And it's like, that'll immediately get me excited about putting something out about it. And I guess I've always been that way. Like, um, if it's something that I can share with people and it's like a story that is like going to be like something new, like that's immediately something that is interesting to me. Um, so, I mean, these days I'm just looking for, for the only things I've written is like 
stuff that surprises me, if it's going to surprise me, there's a decent chance it's going to surprise other collectors because if I haven't seen it, they haven't seen it either. That doesn't mean they're going to like it as much as me because there's plenty of stuff I've written about that I think is awesome and other people don't care about. Um, but in terms of just knowing what is novel, I have a pretty decent nose for that. Um, and so like to take a, a recent example, uh, like um, I wrote the uh, an article on early bird certificate coverage in newspapers uh, a while back. And the genesis of that was that I had gotten an account with this newspaper archive website and I just started going through looking for stuff Star Wars related. And I turned up all these articles and it had a lot of details that I'd never heard about before. Right. And they were like, man, this is pretty cool. Um, and it should, then from there, it's just like, I want to share these somehow, but I need to figure out the proper format, you know, and, it ended up being a, a an article that was probably too long. Most of my articles end up being probably too long, but um, I think is worthwhile in the sense that a lot of that information has never been really tied together in quite that way. I disagree about them being too long, and I, I think most collectors who love this stuff would because um, that's the the details are what we find fascinating, and I think you you lay things out in such a an, an easy to understand way and an enjoyable way um, where you know, the, the, the length of the piece doesn't matter. Um, so um, yeah, don't be, yeah. don't be hard on yourself. <laughs> you say that I just, in our culture these days, like getting someone to read an article at all is difficult to get them to read a long article is, is doubly difficult. Um, but, uh, to your point, like I do, I do try to make them fun to read. And I, I feel, again, I hate to sound like I, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I do feel like I'm pretty good at, try- at making stuff fun to read to a certain extent. Like, I, I don't feel like it's a chore. Like, I, I feel like I'm good enough at shaping the material where it's it's kind of funny or it's, you know, fun to read in some aspect. I, I put a lot of effort into making sure, like, this is not going to be a slog. You know what I mean? Um, and it's going to draw you through the various elements in an organic way. Uh, and um, sometimes it, you achieve that and sometimes maybe you don't. But, I mean, when it really works, I think it's like – you're trying to, to write something that is going to be a, a pleasure for someone to read where they're not going to want to put it down. And I think you do that, especially with kicking off from that first paragraph. And, and that's why I say, you know, um, even a long article doesn't feel long because you, you make it funny and fun. And it's sort of like going on a little adventure, you know, like a sitting, sitting shotgun, you know, in a car with you and, and, you know, driving around while you're explaining this stuff. And, and I've always yeah. really appreciated that. And I'm glad to hear you say that. Cause that is the goal. Like, especially, yeah, I guess in a lot of the, especially the recent things I've written, it's, it's definitely to like tease you through the various components. So it's like you build up a little narrative about this thing and then it, but did you know this about the next thing? And then it leads into the next thing and they all kind of contribute to sort of a, a little um, dominoes falling uh, naturally as you read it rather than just be a bunch of stuff thrown out there randomly. Right. So it should all integrate. Um, so I'm glad to, to hear that you had a good time going through some of those pieces. Absolutely. So you find yourself now something where something surprises you. Uh, it, it sounds exciting. You want to cover it. What's your general approach then to researching and writing a piece? Um, a lot of it, a lot of times, you know, the research is already there in the sense that I've, I'm so steeped in a lot of this stuff. And it's like that I really just have to go back and make some notes and refresh my memory 
like on how these things were released. Like a lot of times I'll go up in my collection, I'll take a bunch of pictures of various catalogs and things. So I have it in front of me um, and, and, and advertisements and whatnot, sometimes the actual items. So I can kind of refresh my memory about what these things looked like and what the, the ad copy was and what the years were and whatnot. And then I can go and look at them and, and kind of put it together in my mind. Um, and that's for a lot of things. Like I'm, I'm already have a basic knowledge of how these things were released and what they were. I just need to refresh my memory. Um, and so it's just more of a process of figuring out how everything fits together. But some of these things, you know, like the, the early bird one, that's purely just going out and collecting a bunch of old articles on the early bird certificate. You know, I had like dozens and a lot of them didn't make the cut cause they were just repetitive. And then kind of, I, I made like a little chart summarizing each one. So I'm like, okay, this one mentions this, 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 and this. And then I kind of moved in a notes app. I moved around the various components. So I, I knew which article I wanted to discuss where, and then I jettisoned all the ones that I thought were not worth talking about. Uh, and then I kind of figured out, okay, this is going to be the, the general flow of the piece. Uh, so that was purely, you know, digging up articles and then plowing through them and making notes on them um, and rearranging it. And so, that's somewhat true of the lightsaber piece, which I did a, I did a, a piece on um, bootleg lightsabers a, a few months ago. And that was also, I, I built up a lot of that through ads. I, I tried to find old ads again in that newspaper archive app. Um, and I found a bunch. I, I'd originally started out with that one intending to discuss one item in particular. Oh, I think it was the SST laser sword. And I was just looking for advertisements. But as I was looking through, I found artic actual articles and whatnot about various bootleg sabers. I'm like, well, oh, this is actually really interesting. You know, there's a whole little year and a half period here where these things were like a, I don't know, major news story is probably overstating it. Where, but they were a significant local news story where like various parts of the country had stories about these lightsabers being sold before Kenner had anything out. So I'm like, man, this needs to be kind of put into an article because I've never heard someone, I've never seen this discussed in depth. I was aware of the products, but not really, you know, how many there were or like some of the personal stories of the people who came up with these items and whatnot uh, and some of the ads that were put out for them. Uh, so that was another one where it's just you're finding old articles, making notes on them and then going to my own collection and being like, OK, which of these items do I actually have? Um, and the ones I didn't, I actually contacted Pete Vilmer, who was an amazing source for a lot of that stuff. And Pete just had a bunch more information that I didn't have. And so that helped me uh, build out what, what I was like trying to report on. In January of this year, um, you started with uh, an article called A Match Made in Capitalism, Kenner, Star Wars, and the Junior Achievement Program, which I, I right. found fascinating. Um, how long did that take you from start to finish as far as researching, writing it, and then publishing it? Oh, uh, maybe three weeks. I mean, on and off, messing around with it. Um, again, like I said, I, I had the basic information. Like I knew what Kenner had released related to Star Wars for the Junior Achievement Program. And the Junior Achievement Program was Kenner partnering with this Junior Achievement nonprofit organization to release a product and um, – I don't know. Maybe they aren't a nonprofit. They do make profits. Anyway, it's a, like a, a youth education program and they, they create like a product and they sell it to the public 
and the the kids keep books and treat it like an actual company and so they can learn about running a business right and so kenner was one of the cincinnati sponsors and they did several products and being a star wars licensee some of those products had a star wars tie-in so i knew that kenner had released several pieces related to that um and i wanted to do an article just tying together the junior achievement star wars items that kenner did um and it would have just been a simple thing because i think a lot of people just aren't aware of those um but then as i i went up and i figured well the thing to do with this is to go look through the kenner internal newsletters and see if they say anything interesting that i'm not aware of right and so i want i have most of the kenner newsletters from that these are like newsletters that would have been put out to employees who worked at kenner back in the day so not available to the public but i have most of them um from the kenner the star wars era so i went through all of them and then in some of them there was a bunch of junior achievement products that were non-star wars related that i was not aware of and i'm like oh this is kind of interesting even though it's a star wars blog right it would be cool to just have a list of everything i'm aware of that kenner did even the non-star wars ones because they generally did one a year um and so there was like some strawberry shortcake ones like a knight rider one some of these i couldn't even find photos of but it's just cool to have that information so i started i was like well this will be an article about um It'll have the Star Wars ones with photos, and then I'll also mention the other Kenner ones just because it's interesting. And then I, I started looking through Cincinnati area newspaper archives and just to see if I could get more information. And I found some more stuff, including like, you know, photos of like the actual events that Kenner sponsored to sell some of these things. And so that kind of rounds it out where you have like, okay, there's pull in like news articles from the era which has information that I wasn't even aware of until I found it, you know? Um, so yeah, it's probably like three weeks or so of messing around with it. Uh, and you know, once, you, once I had those newspaper articles, I was like, Oh man, this is really cool. Cause some of these things, they show period photos of like people, this is a star Wars message center, which they did in, I think it was 78. Um, and it's just like a, a plastic or an acrylic, thing with a cork board stuck on it that people could scribble messages on with like a marker or like a grease pencil. Um, and I found like photos of, of that with the Kenner representatives and the kids who ran the, the junior achievement program at the local mall, like, you know, selling their, their star Wars message center, which is like, that's awesome. Like I, I hadn't seen that before. And the nice thing about it too, is it had the, the star Wars logo on top and the, the racetrack design, um, so it's yes. really one of the first Star Wars items that was produced, um, and it also I, th- I think it has it's either um, it has some tagline at the bottom. Is it? Uh, I think it's actually it says "And then may the force be with you" at the bottom. Um, it's actually it was a '77, so it was a, it was a, they did it in '77, then it was on sale for like Christmas of '77, then into early '78. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a licensed item, so Kenner has an in with Lucasfilm, so they went and got Lucasfilm to sign off on making sure it was official. Um, and it, it, I think there was only like, you know, 500 to a thousand of these things made. And so as far as like a legit star Wars Kenner item, Kenner adjacent, I would say like, it's gotta be one of the rarest things out there. Uh, but and, and most collectors aren't aware of it. So, I mean, it, it would have made a good article even without the extra stuff. But once I found like the newspaper articles, I was like, Oh, this is really cool. Like, I need to put something out about this just so people can see it. And it kind of adds to the knowledge base on these things. Um, but yeah, that was a fun article. I, 
but as you discover, like Ben, again, I mentioned Ben Sheehan before, but he contacted me afterwards. He's like, he's like, mate, he's like, I think in 80, cause I didn't know what was made in 83. And I mentioned that he's like, I think that the, there was a Je- return of the Jedi clock in 83. Um, so, you know, I think that he's probably right because it doesn't make sense that there's a hole there. So I think, you know, maybe I'll update it at some point if, if Ben can, you know, uh, firmly document that and get a photo of it. But I think there may be another piece out there that I wasn't able to find evidence of at the time I published that. Right, because in uh, 77 to 78, in that in that uh, time span, there was the Star Wars Message Center um, uh, cork board. And then in 1980-81, it was the Yoda clock that they had created right. to promote Empire Strikes Back. Yes, and so in 83, you would expect there would probably be some Star Wars related thing because that's when um, uh, uh, Jedi came out. But I didn't – I couldn't find anything. And it's odd that the Kenner newsletters don't mention it. So I don't know if it was like they did it, but maybe they did it in smaller numbers for some reason. I don't know. But it makes sense that there would have been a Jedi thing in 83. But I just – that's not something I had documented so I, I just couldn't report on that. But Ben thinks there might have been. So, I mean, again, I guess my point there is that sometimes by putting these things out there, it, other people come up and say, hey, and, and maybe they do some further research and, 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 you know, learn more about it than you even did. So that's that's always a, a benefit to publishing stuff like that as well. Yeah. And with every passing year, we seem to get closer and closer to the original source, right into the knowledge that we have from building on it. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I, I really enjoyed the tone of this piece and, and the tone of your writing in general. Um, it's, as we said before, it, it, um, you make things where it's, it's very playful. Um, it, it feels more like you and I are just having a conversation when I'm reading these. Um, and you started this one out with something really funny with, uh, an image of Carrie Fisher and Ryan Johnson. Um, as, as I think the way to <laughs> just a way to kind of playfully antagonize people um, because there is so much divisiveness over the, the film. But then going further, uh, there was a there was a part that I, I would liken to a cigarette break. Um, I don't smoke, but you know, um, if you're at a restaurant with a group of collectors and friends, and someone you know wants to to take a cigarette break, um, sometimes like I'll, I'll usually just kind of go outside and, and just you know stand with them, and and a lot of times that's where you sort of have more deeper philosophical moments or, you know, kind of special moments like that. And there was one in this, in this article where, um, you kind of, you, you paused from the, the momentum that you had and you said, there's one mystery concerning the Yoda clock. Don't you just love mysteries without them? Life would be so straight, so rational, so boring. A few years back while rereading Poe, it occurred to me that mysteries and through them, our engagement with the irrational are what keep us going. Without them, life would be a series of insipid confirmations. I'm no philosopher, but I think many would benefit from welcoming a little mysticism into their lives. Only an uninteresting man believes he knows everything. And the man who tells you he knows everything is either stupid or ill-intentioned. And then you went right back into uh, solving this mystery or figuring out, you know, trying to figure out uh, this mystery of of the Yoda clock. And I, I just thought that was such an interesting piece to put into it because it felt more personal. It felt a little more serious at that point. And I think it added a a layer of depth to our conversation, which was really your article. Yeah. Well, I, I probably toyed with cutting that out like 
six or seven times, but ended up leaving it in. I do feel like um, I'm too big of a fan of like Melville and Cervantes to not love digressions and stuff like that. So when you have like a thought, um, I don't know if deep is the right word, but when you have like when, when collecting opens up some kind of door into a, some kind of a wider world or, or a life insight, which, you know, is as trivial as collecting is like, it's impossible to, to be involved in it at the level that we are when it, where it doesn't have some interface with larger life lessons. Right. Um, but when, when that door does open, like you might as well explore it a little bit, I, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the feeling I have about things in general and it does tie into um, how I feel about exploring like collecting and, and also, you know, just having stuff about collecting that hasn't been answered yet. You know, this feeling of excitement about the, the mysteries that are still out there, you know, that, that does have an applicability to our larger engagement with the world, I think. So what was the most surprising part of this article for you, you know, as far as the what you discovered within your research or something that that stuck out to you? Um, I'm sorry, in this article in particular, the, the junior yes. achievement one. Um, I guess the part that I liked is finding the photos of the kids, you know, at the, the, I think it was an event at the mall to sell the the message board. And it looks like there's someone's mom or dad wearing a, you know, a Don Post helmet, Darth Vader helmet dressed as Darth Vader. And there's a kid who looks like your stereotypical seventies kid with like, it's sort of like skimpy mustache and he just looks like <laughs> he looks like and it's just it's got such flavor to it and it's got even though this is kenner and it's an officially lucasfilm approved thing it's it's such a like there's so much ground appeal like there's so much this, this is like the local community and their reaction to star wars and star wars toys and the christmas season and there's no like glitz to it or anything and it it just does give you a sense of how pe- regular people interfaced with Star Wars and Star Wars toys at that time. And that is not something that like that photo is just gold, you know, and I don't think anyone had seen that. And there's a big banner. Star Wars Co was the name of the company they made to, to market this thing. Um, and there's a big banner in the back and how cool would it be to find that banner? You know, that would be a cool collectible to find. Uh, stuff like that is, is really cool. And then there's another one of a kid getting um, awards for the, and from the local Cincinnati paper for the, the star Wars co thing. Uh, that's probably the, the thing that I got out of it. The most that, that I enjoyed was just that, you know, those local pieces of local flavor that I was not aware of and wouldn't have been aware of if I hadn't gone and done the research. It's a really good point though, too, because I think sometimes we forget, but I mean, we're dealing with two behemoths, right? It's star Wars and Kenner. Um, and then you're, you're, Kind of trickling that down into a a local photo or a, a local event, and um, and you're right. A lot of times, I mean, that stuff just disappears. So to have a photo like that, where you can see things like the Junior Achievement Program in action, and uh, something like even the, the banners that may exist or may not exist anymore, um, oh, yeah. and then of course, as you said, the 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 '70s mustache. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Stuff like that is really cool. I just love finding like something from the newspaper, you know, showing like people with Star Wars toys at the time, just regular people. Uh, 
is, is a lot of fun. Um, and I was really happy to, to find those, those things in the, in the Cincinnati papers. And even if, if you read the, you read the piece, so you're probably aware, but if you look at the Cincinnati news coverage and the Kenner newsletters, like there's some of the same family names pop up in multiple years. So it's almost like one kid worked on something in 77 and then like his sister three years later is on the, in the junior achievement program. So there is a real community quality to it that it, that's a lot of fun like I, I just that's one of the fun things about those junior achievement things like like you already mentioned like it's not uh you know fox 20th century fox lucasfilm it's just these people these regular people in their hometown making an item to sell to locals so it's only 500 made or whatever that's kind of what makes these items fun and interesting if i have it correct the person that um was mentioned in the article with the same last name I think it was a person's either sister or mother uh, dressed up right. as Darth Vader. Yeah, that might have been it. Like it might have been yeah. the lady dressed as Darth Vader had the same name as someone else. He was like, "Is that that guy's mom?" It probably is. You know? <laughs> it's like, that you know, stuff like that to me is fun. Like that, that's probably yeah. my favorite aspect of that that information. I loved reading that article. I thought it was really just a fantastic piece and something that if you didn't cover it, I don't know if we would we would have had it otherwise. Once I found those articles that no one had ever seen before, when I found them, like I figured, or no one, in, no one in our circle had ever seen before. Like I figured, I have to write something about this just to put these pictures out here because these are just really too cool not to share. Yeah, that and the articles, and also the the pieces. I mean, uh, on one hand, I'm reading it and I'm totally into it, loving it, and on the other hand, I'm like, I'm going to kill him because now I have to get one of these message center cork boards. <laughs> so our friend Robin Bokra bought one at I think at Nashville just recently she texted me about it but they don't come up that often you know it, oh. you see one of these items you should jump on it um that, that that message center like I like the clock too but the message center to me is just next level I love that thing um it, it's really it doesn't look like um an amateur design at all I mean it really looks like a professional beautiful Star Wars design again it has that that racetrack uh, that iconic racetrack design around the edges that we just love. Yeah, I'm sure it was silk screened on there. Our friend Todd Chamberlain, I believe, has one that's still on the box. Like, there's like a oh, wow. white mailer, or just like a cardboard mailer thing. Uh, mailer is the wrong term, but just an outer carton that that those things came in. But I don't have one like that. In March, you created an article with our friend Yehuda Kleinman uh, called "Adventures in Miniature: Neville Stockins." Star Wars figures and their motley offspring. Um, I think the name Neville Stockin is a perfect Star Wars era name as well. Um, but uh, yeah. but what, what inspired you to work on this one? Oh, well, it's been a long time coming. Like, no doubt, like, no joke. Um, probably 12 years I've been talking about putting something together about these figures and with Yehuda specifically. Um, and I just never felt like I quite cracked the nut on, on what was going on with those pieces. Uh, because j just to give the listeners some context, you know, that Neville Stockin was a gaming miniature sculptor who in 77 sculpted a line of star Wars figures. This is before the Kenner figures were out and he sold these at gaming conventions and whatnot. Um, and they later, got bootlegged by other companies. You know, he was shut down by Lucasfilm because he didn't have a license, but then his figures were purchased and they were bootlegged by other companies and sold. And so it's always been a, 
massively confusing about what these things are, how to tell the bootlegs from the originals. And then Stockin's own figures, like he modified them to get around the licensing stuff. So there's modified ones. There's just various waves of these things. Um, and so, I mean, I started out just completely confused. Uh, and I think probably Yehuda did as well because he was interested in the figures. And uh, I was like, well, you know, going to have to go to work. And it's like the only way to really um, crack the nut, like I said, on that whole story is to find kind of catalogs you know I, that I, that was always my goal was to find a catalog for archive miniatures which is the company that Stockin ran um you know our, our jeff carell who's is a collector you probably know had had a lot of these and he was the first one to tell me like oh no these are archive miniatures like because for a while people called them heritage figures and that's inaccurate so once i knew that I was like, well, I got to find a catalog. And I did locate a catalog after a while. I found several pieces of advertising. And after a while, like, I think the story kind of fell into place with what happened to these. And I kind of was pretty confident, you know, as long ago as four or five years ago that I kind of knew what happened and I wanted to contextualize it in an article and you kept bugging me about it. Um, but the, the delay for, for four or five years was getting, you know, Mr. Stock into, sit for an interview you know, I'd contacted him and he seemed like he was fine with it. And then he just sort of ghosted me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I, I, I just really wanted to, I figured that's what that'd be the centerpiece is get this, this, this guy to do an interview about his stuff. And he'd been pretty open on other, on um, gaming forums and whatnot. So I'm like, I'm sure, but I, I don't know. My suspicion is that he's worried about legal ramifications, but I tried and you who tried to, but I, I couldn't get him. So eventually I'm like, all right, I just need to get this off my chest. Uh, and so I compiled all the information with Yehuda and we kind of ran through it. And then I wrote it, you know, I think Yehuda wrote like a paragraph or two that I incorporated into my stuff. Um, but you know, it's basically the two of us as friends, you know, kind of saving information and kind of, comparing notes and whatnot that was the genesis of that and that honestly that's probably if i had to pick the best thing i've written recently that's probably my favorite just because i love those pieces and i think it it fits together like a story and i love the whole neville Stockin story and i and i succeeded in finding again a bunch of stuff that nobody had seen before like i found like a a little item from a, a san rafael newspaper about him writing to the editor trying to get George Lucas's phone number. I mean, just like <laughs> these weird minutiae, you know, um, that really just kind of fleshed out the story, even without Neville's participation. Um, and again, that stuff is just really gets, gets me excited. Like finding an article that actually talks about him and his Star Wars stuff from the seventies, from his local paper. Like how cool is that? You know? Um, and so I, I really like the way it reads through as a story, but as Chris Gugulia says, no one's going to read this. It's too long. So it's probably it's the problem <laughs> is trying to balance the story aspect of it with the collecting aspect of it. And it's like, you sort of have to do both and that's where it becomes difficult. Like I want to document all the variations, but I also want to tell a coherent and easy to read story. And so you kind of have to weigh the overly detailed collecting nerd aspect with it against the, is this a good story aspect of it? And I think it does an okay job. It's probably too long, like Chris says, but it's it's still, I think it's fun to read. And it, I think it kind of gives you an interesting narrative about this guy and the figures he made. 
I, I think you found the perfect balance for it, though, um, because I think if you focused too much on what was available or you know the specific stock, I, I think that you'd lose some people. But I think because you went more toward the story of Neville Stockin and really, and, and, and I can't stress this enough because I think this is actually one of the most interesting and most important parts to the entire piece. I didn't, I did, had never known about these uh, specific miniatures. Um, I, I, when I first read the article, I thought you were talking about something completely different. Um, but they are, they're gorgeous. First of all, I mean, they're really done artfully, but, uh, as, as you mentioned in the article, like these are, are likely the first star Wars figures ever released, uh, because they came out in July of 1977. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I mean, who knows, there could have been someone in Minneapolis who made his own little line, like who knows, but as far as like anything that had any national traction where people were aware of them. Yeah. I think they're probably the first figures um and yeah like you said they're beautiful like i i know people who like oh those things are junk yeah sometimes they're getting the the like the bootlegs of his figures confused with his originals but his originals just have so much charm and character um that to me i'm biased because i just i just love the things but to me they're among the the best consumer aimed star wars collectibles you know there's charm there's a personal quality to them there's a handmade handcrafted quality um they're they're rare the originals it's just and they're figural and there's just there's so much to like about them as collectibles and like you said so few people are even aware that they're out there that it seems like sometimes when i when i find an original i buy it i just feel like it's one of those feelings where you get like like i'm buying this great item and i'm not even paying anything for it but it just feels like you know they're underrated. So I was happy to draw attention to, to some of those for people who weren't aware of them. Yeah. You had mentioned that the, so there was one where it, there's a, a Tuscan Raider or two Tuscan Raiders on a Bantha. And you said yeah. that the, the scale is off because the, the, the Bantha is actually, it should be much larger to, to hold the, yeah. the two Tuscan Raiders, but you said it doesn't matter because the essence is there. It feels like it. And then you also talked yeah. about the, um, there were figures that Neville created that had never been created, you know, by, by Kenner. Like you had, um, I think right. it's, his name is Garandon, the, um, the little spy with the, the long nose. Um, right. and, uh, there was another one too. Oh, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin. And yeah. the band more. is, is the big one. Yes. That people remember. Yeah. The, the band was incredible though, too, because, and what you said here is, um, you said the group, especially when posed together has a sense of motion swing, even they just ooze personality and you can feel it. They're in mid note as they're, they're playing, which is really hard yeah. to do. I think people have a tendency to, they're not, he's not a realistic sculptor really. Like there's a sort of a sky pain. We talked about the sun skies podcast, the Kivecast. So check that out if, if you want to get some more in depth on it. But he pointed out on that episode that, um, uh, there's, um, there's a real arts and crafts, Northern California sort of hippie quality to them, similar to the yes. rump mugs where it's like, you feel the handmade quality. And so he's that kind of artist where it's like not necessarily actual realism he's going for, but the band, yeah, it does seem like each one of them seems caught mid mid playing the music. And getting that into a little tiny sculpture is not easy. Like it it takes some talent. Like this guy had some some real talent 
to, to get that aspect in where they, there's a, a feeling of motion and movement in these little tiny figures that to me is it's, it's when looking at art, any sort of art, that's more important than verisimilitude, right? I mean, it's, you can be exacting in your detail, but that's trying to get a, a sense of the spirit to make them bantha feel like it's actually moving as these things are on top of it in a little tiny sculpture it's a real achievement. And I think he really did that. So that's one of the reasons I love those pieces so much. And um, I'm still looking for a few of those originals, man. So if anybody's got any <laughs> that pop up, shoot me, shoot me a message. Sure. Yeah. It, they remind me of, um, there was a, an artist um, who used to do animation. His name was Bill Plimpton and um, right. he was yeah. on MTV's liquid television. You might've seen some, his, his stuff is, is pretty prolific, but uh he had this kind of squash and stretch aesthetic, um, but also it looked like he had done everything kind of in a very rough pencil. And, and to me, this this feels like these miniatures, these 3D pieces feel like claymation mixed with fine art. Yeah, no, I agree. There's there's definitely a uh, an artistic quality to them that is really enjoyable. And um, I, you know, I, and I think that they deserve to be better known uh and it's it's a shame that those figures are mostly known through the bootlegs of them which in which a lot of the the finer you know nuances of the the sculpts are kind of lost um but you know that's something i tried to explain in the article and kind of show you the progression from the originals to the bootlegs right so he had created them and he had come under fire because they were essentially unlicensed, but then other companies had taken his sculpts and had made molds from them, um, which, as, as you noted in your article, were the the quality was was lesser. Um, and then I think they were even hand painting them, so so they didn't have that same feel um, and and that same detail that that Neville's original ones had. No, they they lost all of the the nuance, and also since they made for some of the. I think they didn't have all of his figures, right? So they and so, like they didn't seem to have his Han Solo, whoever made the bootlegs. And so somebody at the company probably figured, well, we need a Han Solo, so they sculpted their own, and those are just atrocious. You know, I, I like them because they're so funny, but I mean, from a arts perspective, like they're not the craftsmanship perspective, they're not very good. Um, so yeah, the later ones, which were it seemed to be released by Star Trek Galore and Pose Posters as the two big companies are nowhere near the level of quality that the Stockton ones are. So side by side, you can completely tell there's a total difference. Uh, just, yeah. and, and not even, not even in the detail, but also in the essence, right? There's just something missing. Yeah. You suddenly lose that essence. We were just talking about that, you know, the sense of personality kind of just drains out of them. Um, and, you know, and that's even true of some of the ones that, Neville's own company archive miniatures did later on that were like the modified originals. Like the further you got from his original 77 ones, like the less inspired some of those things seem. So toward the end of your article, uh, what stuck out to me was that you had kind of given us hints on, on how you research or, and how you, you write these articles. Uh, you said in one quote, if I harp too incessantly on the importance of original advertisements and catalogs, it's only because I think collectors pay them too little attention. And then there was this, this blue box mystery where it was this, this blue box that held these figures 
um, and had the Star Wars logo on it. And in the article, you were trying to figure out what it was. And you said, generally mm-hmm. speaking, if you want to know what items in, in a particular production range were available, you need to go back to the original source, the publications that retailers and consumers use to order them. So I thought that was really interesting that you shared that part of it. And and you were basically saying, this is this is how I came up with this article. This is, these are the resources that I used. Um, and I think you're right. A lot of times people do ignore those, those advertisements, the catalogs, which contain things like information of what was available, um, the dates that the stuff was produced. Um, so I thought you did a great job in, in, in not only explaining the miniatures, but explaining your process as well. Yeah. Going back and finding the original catalogs is all, almost always answers your question. You know, the question that the problem is just finding the catalog, right? So, um, and I remember arguing with people about this on going way back to Usenet where they would, you would be like, okay, this mystery solved because here it is in the catalog. And they would come back, well, but, but, and they'd go back to their old, old theories. Like, this pretty much answers the question. Like this is the company itself put this out. Like that's kind of the end of the story for me. <laughs> like, I don't really, not to say there couldn't be some kind of, but that's really the, the be all end all sometimes catalogs are wrong in rare cases like Kenner notoriously has unproduced items in their catalogs. But, you know, as far as what was released, released by archive miniatures, like the catalog is going to clear up 95% of that. Um, and in the case of the blue box, like there's a, there's a version of these bootleg figures, bootlegs of Neville's original figures. One of them was a set that came in a blue box, basically just like a, a case for drill bits that someone had stuck a star Wars logo on. Um, and that was, one of the last mysteries that Yehuda and I kind of figured out on that. And the, 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 the question was, are these different from the Star Trek galore figures, which had a different, different characters in it or, and you know, who released it, you know, who, where'd this come from? Like we knew Star Trek galore did one set. Where did this blue box set come from? And I just randomly on um, eBay found an old catalog, basically of a company that sold, Elvis memorabilia, mostly Elvis and Beatles. And sure enough, there was the, uh, the, the very figures from that blue box. And the one of the, I found two catalogs. One of them actually had them available as a set. So I'm pretty confident that's the, the company that offered that blue box set. And it's a company called pose posters. Um, and you know, that was basically, you know, my getting it and taking pictures and sending it to Yehuda and us being like, just really satisfied that we kind of figured it out. Um, but, you know, the, the article is kind of an attempt to share the excitement that we had discovering this stuff with the reader. So hopefully you kind of get a sense of discovery as you're reading through it. I love that the two of you worked on it together because Yehuda is someone who is incredibly special. He has an amazing sense of humor. Um, he has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to collecting. And he has a, a, a passion that really fuels that constant search, you know, to understand the hobby and the collectibles that came from it. And, um, and, and he just, he has a kindness as well too, you know, where he's oh, willing, yeah. freely willing to share this information and to connect with others. What was it like to work with him on this? Oh, yeah, he's just one of my best friends. So, um, you know, it's just, what's it like? It's just, there's no, there wasn't like any sort of official thing. It was just, you know, years of going back and forth and random texts and whatnot, and, you know, sharing like, Oh, I found this ad. I found this, this, um, this catalog and kind of like thinking it through like, well, maybe this happened and this happened and this happened and trying to fit our hypotheses to the actual facts as they turned up, you know? So, 
Um, basically just, it was just like a friendship, you know, just going back and forth. And, you know, I've had certainly kind of similar to what I was talking about earlier when I mentioned about in the old days, um, sending like dozens of emails a day to people like us and Chris and all of that was the same, like trying to just sharing information and kind of building the story of this thing you collect as you go along. Um, it's just nowadays you do it on text message and whatnot. And, you know, nowadays it's not so much about prototypes or whatever. It's about these other things that I've become interested in over the years because right. the prototype thing has been kind of done to death by this point. <laughs> well, and, and I've, I've always said that, you know, for us collecting the, these pieces that we collect are tangible souvenirs of intangible moments. And I look at something like this article and in a way, this article, in addition to being many things, um, it's also a tangible representation of your friendship with Yehuda. And I think that's really special, something that yeah. you'll always yeah. have, you know, for the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I hate to be all sappy and whatnot, but I mean, that's how I look at collecting in general, you know, like when we do, um, you know, my store display collection, when I look at it, I think of Todd Chamberlain and Chris Gregulius and all the people that I was, you know, Mike Mensinger, the people I knew and sort of collected with at the time that was being put together. Um, that's kind of the main, the main thing that feels real about the collection in a lot of ways. Uh, even, you know, the events, you know, like the annual that we did this past year when, when you, you and yourself and other people came out to New York for that event, you know, I, it's all about the, relationships you know it's not the event is kind of just the forum or the medium through which you have these these relationships expressed and i feel like collecting is like that it's just got kind of a medium for your your the relationships you have with people and so yeah i'll whenever i look at my neville stock in figures i'll always think of yehuda and the article is certainly an attempt to sort of memorialize that in in a, in a way that you can read other people can read and I love that, you know, you were also able to reach out to Neville and to contact him, uh, which is something that <laughs> yeah. maybe you wouldn't have done otherwise. He was nice. He got back to me. He was really, he was nice and answered some questions and seemed into it. And then, like I said, I, I don't, I don't hold anything against him. He, he just kind of ghosted me and Yehuda, I, I had to back Yehuda down because he was like, we'll just keep harassing him until he responds. <laughs> you know, like Yehuda. Like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, let's not harass the guy. Like he's had ample opportunity to respond and I don't. I don't think he plans to. And so that's fine. You know, I certainly appreciate his work though. Yeah. And the fact that you, you had the chance to speak to him, I think is, is, you know, more than enough. That's, that's wonderful. So, um, yeah, fortunately he was very forthcoming in the past. I think dear Tony Blair is a great blog devoted to gaming miniatures. And the guy who runs that site name escapes me right now. Nice guy. Very nice guy. But dear Tony Blair's his blog. Oliver and I don't, something Oliver. I don't think so. That's okay. You, you can just do, you can Google Dear Tony Blair and his blog will come up. Um, I don't know why it's called Dear Tony Blair, but that's what it's called. But um, Neville back in the day had posted a lot of comments on there. So I just kind of used his comments and quoted him and credited the blog. Um, so I, I did have his personal takes. It just wasn't to me directly. It was through through another source. Sure. That was a really special one. And and I think, you know, those two were done in the first half of the year. And, um, and it just, for me, it was just, it was a great way to really kind of kick off the year of collecting. I love any time that you publish one. Um, I did want to talk to you about one last article though. You, so in, in May of 2021, um, you wrote about someone who uh, was really impactful on our hobby, uh, John Kellerman. Um, so how did that article come about? 
Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. How did it come about? I guess, you know, John was a friend. I'm not going to say that we were like, you know, best friends, but I knew him for 20 plus years, went to his house and, you know, I, he was a friend um, and someone who uh, I had interacted with quite a bit and whose contributions I valued quite a bit. And I always thought he was a really nice guy. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, honestly, he's probably the first person I've known at that level in collecting who to pass away. Um, and he's obviously older than most of us, right? He's considerably older. He's probably my dad's age, older than my dad, maybe. So um, he was, you know, an, an older person. Um, but still, that's the first person I really knew to to, to pass away. And I guess that kind of affected me a little bit, um, thinking about it. And I'd read some of the other obituaries and things and, and memorializations and, and they were all good. You know, I just, but I just remember thinking, well, I wish this, I wish people, I wish it had mentioned this and that, not that I thought that the author had, it wasn't like, Oh, this person missed that. It was just kind of like, as I read it, like I had my own reflections and I was like, well, I wish it and was like, well, this is dumb. Like, why don't I just write my own thing? Like if I wish that somebody had mentioned this, like I should just go write my own thing about him. Sure. So I was like, well, this is dumb. Like if, if I, if I want something to be said about him, then I should just write it myself. And it, I, I just intended to kind of do a couple of paragraphs, but you know, as I've learned as a, a writer over the years, it's like, once I start write, I don't really discover what I want to say till I start writing. Right. So, and as I wrote it, I was like, it developed to a longer thing. And then it ended up kind of just really saying something that I think I wanted to say, but probably wasn't aware I wanted to say, you know, if, 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 if that makes sense. Um, and I think that happens in all, all successful written pieces, I think by people who are kind of who relate to the world through writing in some way. Like, I think you find what you find your voice, you find your message as you're, as you're writing it. That's just kind of how it works a lot of times. And so as I wrote it, I kind of discovered more about how I felt about it. Um, that I think I had re recognized to begin with. Um, and it's just, you know, and we like all rem remembrances, I guess it's probably pretty selfish because I'm talking about how I remember John and how I first met him and what the hobby was like when, I first heard about him, you know, because I mean, like I mentioned in that piece, like um, I first heard about him through a dealer in New Jersey who had mentioned him. He was just kind of like a legend, you know, like, and it was a legend for like the intense way that he collected. Uh, and it just sounded crazy to me at first. And I don't think collectors nowadays even realize that the John Kellerman method of collecting is really like nobody collected like that before John, you know, when you tried to find like, every variation of a carded figure like that. And that was considered somewhat crazy at the time he was doing it. So, and the fact that that's changed is all down to him basically um, in his book. And uh, I don't think people realize that the book was not really a roaring success. You know, I think, I don't know if you regretted it, but I think he's definitely, I remember him expressing concern about people not buying it and having a garage full of those things. What um, was the book? Uh, Star Wars Vintage Action Figures was the name of his book, and um, it's notoriously been sold out for a long time. So if you want to buy a copy, you have to get it on the aftermarket, and it's, and it's expensive. But um, you know, it's just, it's. I'm not dinging it at all. I think it's a wonderful book, and I, I you know, I, I think it's a wonderful reflection of of John, who is a friend. Um, but I think the book is styled as like 
this is going to give you all the information about Star Wars action figures. And it's true to an extent, but what it really is, is like, it is a record of John's collection and his, his efforts in, in putting it together and documenting it. So I think he pulled in some things he didn't have from other people, but one of the joys of it is it's really, this is John Kellerman's collection and it's like a history of all the stuff he put together. Um, so to me that that's more interesting. That aspect of the book is more interesting than any sort of like outside, like this is the be all end all about Kenner. Like I'm more interested in how it relates to John, the person. Um, and that that's to me is the charming aspect of that book. Cause it is such a John Kellerman thing. Like if you knew him, like that book is like, so it, it is not easy for a writer, even of like a collectibles book to get their personality across through like a, a, a collectibles book like that. And it, it, it is a hundred percent like looking through it. I'm like, yep, this is what John was like. Um, and that to me is kind of, uh, what is special about it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's beautifully laid out. I can't remember now if he had someone help him. I mean, I'm take the photos and lay it out graphically, but it, it's re- very concise and crisp. And, uh, it's just, a, it's a really fun document of John Kellerman, the collector. Ron, how did, Kellerman's approach to collecting differ from the way that most people collected in the nineties and early two thousands. Oh man. Oh, it differed a lot. Like when I started collecting, um, people were into the carded figures and it was like, people would want one of each carded figure. Sometimes it didn't really even matter the back. Um, more often than not, people would want them on the original back, like 12, there was 12 backs, right? If people wanted 12 backs, that was like the only back that people really cared that much about maybe 31 backs to like a little bit of a degree or something rare, like a empire, you know, 21 back or something. But for the most part, people didn't really care that much. Like, Oh, I have an empire Luke Bespin. That's kind of what you cared about. Um, Sometimes they would want ones without offers. So it's like a lot, that was a common thing. Like, I don't want any offer because that was regarded as like a, a, like a defect, like if it had an offer on the character photo. Um, and that was, so that was kind of how people did carded figures. But um, John, of course, he wanted every single variation, regardless of whether it was on the front or back of the card of every figure, right? So if he was going to buy Luke original, he didn't want just like a 12 back and that was it. He wanted the 12 back, every variation. So the 12 A, B, C, like all that stuff where people were interested in all the back variations. That's like 90% from John Kellerman's influence because people didn't care. Like I think at the archive, Dan Flaherty put together like using loose card backs, like card backs that had been opened, the bubble taken off. He put together a chart before Kellerman's book, but that was more or less like just for information. Like, oh, let's see what everything is out there. People weren't really collecting. Like, like I'm going to be a Chewbacca collector and I'm going to collect every single one. That was John's thing. And it wasn't just one character. Like he did every character, right? So he was buying all of them. Um, and I honestly, like I said in the article, like I honestly thought that was crazy. When someone told me that there was a guy who was doing that, I'm like, that's just crazy. I can't even imagine I love the way you introduce it, though. And I, I so this article to me is one of the the best articles that I think you've written for the blog. Um, it's masterful. And, and I think you avoided doing, as you said, uh, any sort of obituary or, you know, standard tribute. And, and I think that is evident in the beginning, um, because what you do is you put us in your position where you're talking to a dealer and you're finding out about 
um, the way that John collects. And this dealer knows that you're going to be shocked by it because it's not it's not the normal way. And so when the dealer says to you that, you know, that he's, he's looking for, you know, different backs, he knows what you're going to say. And he's, he's kind of leading you there on purpose because then he's, you know, because you think, okay, it's, it's like one of, you know, one of each one on star Wars, maybe one on empire. And then he takes you a step further and he's like, no, 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 no. And he keeps having you try to guess. And then he hits you with that line at the end where, you know, he's looking for 12 a B C and then, you know, uh, 31A, 31B. And, and at that point, what you end on right, right before you really get into the, the meat of your article is, or your, your tribute is, um, you know, the dealer basically says to you, I don't, I don't know why I, I think he's writing a book or maybe he's writing a book. And that's right. how, that's how we know John. So you took us in like that. Um, and then, you know, just from there too, like your, your tribute was, a really nice one. You didn't try to give us uh, his, his whole biography or you know any sort of timeline for him. You you then took a second to explain how people in the '90s collected, which I think is really important because we've lost that now. Even if we grew up or were collecting at that time, like sometimes it's very difficult to remember, especially you know when when you've been removed from it for so long. Um, why did you choose to to give that that context there? Because I think it works beautifully. Uh, yeah, I just, I, that was kind of one of the things, I guess, when I was reading some of the appreciations of them that I, I wish people had mentioned, I guess, like I said, just to make it selfish for a minute. Cause I do think at some level, um, our remembrances of people end up being selfish, right? Even though they're about other people, they're about our, our reactions to them. And I wanted something that was just really personal to me. And that's how I remember John. You know, I remember the first time I heard about him. Um, I remember the way collecting was before and after his book. Um, and I think a lot of people who weren't around that long don't realize how much it changed um, or just how much collecting has changed in general based on various things. Right. But John certainly had his impact. Um, I remember the first time I met him in person and we had a, I remember the weather we were sitting out there in Northern California with his wife and, and John, and it was me, Chris, Gus, Eddie, Todd. Um, you know, I, that's kind of how I remember him. I remember running into him the last time at the grand opening for Rancho. Um, and I kind of just wanted it to be a personal thing about what I think of when I think of John Kellerman as a guy who I was friends with and um, who I collected with to some degree. Uh, you know, I still, um, I bought quite a few of his displays when he first sold them. So I still see those. And I remember, oh, that's one of John's pieces, you know, and um, that was probably, man, 2003 or something like that. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm glad we're talking about it because that's probably one of my favorite things I've written on the blog. And I I don't, other than John's wife, uh, Annabelle, I don't think um, many people have commented on it. So I, you know, it's a special piece for me and John was a special guy. So, and it's funny, you describe it as being maybe selfish and personal, but it doesn't come across that way at all. It comes across as, as intimate and personal as far as your relationship with him. But again, the way that you frame that beginning, I think it's something that most of us have experienced where when you hear some, like, depending on when you started out collecting, but, but to hear for the first time that someone is going to collect every single carded example of a figure is, is shocking. And then also when you, you know, giving us context of, of what that, 
that collecting world was like, and then going into his influence and how really how he shaped the hobby. Um, I just thought that was so powerful and, and so personal and it only works through masterful writing. And I think you, you did that. And I think cause you were writing with your heart and, and with your mind, right. It was that perfect, you know, that, that perfect confluence where um, your emotions and your connection to him meet with right. this larger uh, area. And because he's no longer with us, you were able to, to be that translator. Right. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that, David. Um, but yeah, I think just to tie this back into some of the stuff we talked about earlier was just, um, you know, I guess what I took writing that piece and, and the personal aspect of it that, that kind of came that bubbled up as I was writing it is just, um, you know, we talked earlier about how people, using the archive and even people who weren't necessarily editors of the archive, you know, sort of impacted the hobby or by sharing information. And, you know, John is certainly an extreme case, right? Cause I think, I think he had a giant impact on the hobby, but I think one of the ideas in that piece, it's a stealth idea. It's kind of buried beneath the, the obvious stuff is, is that we all contribute as we go along, um, to the course of what's what the hobby is and what becomes popular and what's not popular, what people know and what they don't know. We all have a sort of legacy by what we share with other collectors. Um, and, uh, that's kind of what makes it the journey. So, you know, fun, I guess, especially if you've done it for a long time is these people that come in, make an impact. Maybe they come, they leave, but you still remember them and, and they provide something. Uh, and, and John certainly provided more than most people uh, because I mean, when you're at it, I mean, you too, you've been collecting a while, right? I mean, but it's been 30 years for me now. So this is more than half of my life um, by a long shot. And uh, I think you do start thinking about what it's meant to your life in, in, in more personal terms and you know what, what the legacy is and, you know, how things have changed and all that stuff. And, that's certainly what was going through my mind as I kind of put those, those words down. I think you did it in a, in a beautiful and profound way. And, you know, there's, there's always that danger in writing something where it becomes um, either too tangential or too much on, on, on yourself, right. As, as we're writing this, that that's always a concern. And I, I think you did it in such a way that uh, it really was about John, but it was about these bigger ideas you know, as well too, as you said, about having a lasting impact and a legacy. Um, what do you think your legacy will be as a collector and as a, as a writer? Cause we all, we all have one. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, um, but, but really where, where, where do you think you fit in and, and where do you think you've left your mark? I really don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, that, I mean, I'm probably a bad person to ask cause I'm kind of, living it so i really don't know i mean i've been around a long time and i've written a bunch of stuff so inevitably that bleeds into the the hobby consciousness i guess or people are aware of this or that i did but um you know i've never impacted things in such a hard and fast way as john did when he released that book or that steve sansweet did when he released because there's kind of like unique things. I think it's more cumulative. I do feel like cumulative is a good word to describe how I look at my, any sort of influence I've had on things. I feel like there's this cumulative um, influence in 
in what I've contributed to people over the years, but it hasn't been any sort of like one big thing. It's just kind of little drip, drip, drip over time. And I do sense it. Like, like I said earlier, when someone, lady writes me like telling me her, her, she wants to get a magazine that I wrote an article in for her husband. It's like, Oh, people have paid attention to this stuff over the years. Um, I think inevitably like all the archive guys are going to be remembered for all the prototype stuff. Cause that's really what was the bread and butter and of what we were doing in those days. Right. So that'll certainly be something I feel like when I see like, um, you know, the guys who wrote the engineering and empire book and did a great job with that. Like, I do feel like that's partially built on things that we did years ago. Like those guys are kind of taking it another step and doing their own thing. So I, I see that kind of influence with people. And it certainly we were influenced by, you know, Steve Stansfield and Steve Denny, especially right. Who were doing stuff like that before anybody. Tom Nyheisel is another one. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't know what my influence, I just feel like cumulative is the one word. I feel like it's been a slow drip that, and people who I think anybody who kind of interfaces with um, Star Wars, vintage Star Wars collecting on the Internet in particular, it's it's hard to get around like all my my blabbing because they, they're going to find it on search engines. because There's just so much <laughs> of it out. <laughs> so that, that's how I feel. Um, and, and like I've mentioned in some articles, I feel like there's been some negative things like. I know I have that's 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 a good thing I know about my influence is that I am responsible for terror people using terrible terms use sometimes it's a good term you know you invented but a lot of times it'll be some terrible thing like man I wish I never said that because now other people are saying it because they read me use, use it years ago yeah um, you mentioned in the uh the miniature one the uh the, the term uh, internal first shot right yeah, that's that was stupid. Oh, people keep using that term because I used it years ago. Stupid. But but I I like I like seeing those because you know again I I think it points to the fact that we are the archaeologists. We are the people who are trying to figure this stuff out, and there aren't these definitive you know given terms that are in you know some some collector's bible somewhere. Uh, and so I I love a term like that because to me it just it shows like hey you know you guys really throughout the decades have been building something, you know, and, and, and kind of, you know, at times stumbling to get there or whatever, but the fact that you have been doing this, you know, week in, week out, month in, month out, um, to make this, to, to figure out, uh, you know, that this, this realm of ours, uh, I think is really impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess just going back to the internal first shot thing, like, the, the, I know. I notice my influence in terms, like people using terms for things. <laughs> people use this, this or that term, and this even came up somewhere where someone's like, "Where did this term come from?" And so, oh, that must have been some Kenner thing. And I'm like, I, I think I responded. I was like, "No, I'm pretty sure I just pulled that out of my butt at one time to describe something, <laughs> and everybody describes it as that because that because it's on the internet, people see it." Um, sometimes it's a good term. So you're like, Oh, I'm glad I came up with that one. Cause that's a solid one. And other times it's like, man, that was stupid. Like I put that out there and now I can't put the horse back in the barn. Like people just keep calling it this and it's, it's wrong. Um, but I do see that cause that people, the way people refer to things, especially in the prototype realm is like, definitely like, okay, I, I can spot like, okay, that's, that's something I came up with. <laughs> I invented that. I invented that. Or I see like, this is something we didn't talk about, but on the archive, I, I had mentioned that 
people would be frustrated that we didn't have a lot of normal stuff on there. It was all like rare prototypes and things like where's, where's the gallery of 12 backs, right? So to correct that, at one point, I spent a lot of time doing like write-ups for every single Kenner action figure toy and also the 12-inch line and the micros. So there's that whole toy section on the archive, which is like entirely written by me. And most of the photos were my collection. Um, I see that stuff all like I go on eBay and I see people like they just copy what I wrote and paste <laughs> it in there. Sure. And I'm like, That's just my stuff. And or my photos just show up all even though they're old junky internet photos, like I still see those photos used all over the place. And again, it's just the nature of the internet. It's just so easy to Google it and then it pops up and boom. And so you see, I see the stuff that I did years ago, like in all sorts of places, uh, auction catalogs. Sometimes I'm just like, okay, this guy Googled it and found my, my description and has used that for, you know, his auction description or whatever. Um, so that's another funny, funny impact, but yeah, I don't know. As far as what impact I had, you have to go ask somebody else and see what I mean, I'm, it's all bound up though with, the archive and Gus and Chris and all those other guys who contributed sure. a lot to that. So I'll tell you from an outside perspective, um, the impact that you've had on, on my life is that you have helped me to better understand the hobby and what I collect to have a deeper appreciation for it. Um, you've shown me at, at meetups, um, what a meetup can be, you know, something like the annual where you, Chris and Steph Riley, um, you know, put something together that, that really hadn't been done by, by our club or by most clubs. Um, and, and I think that you also do it in such a gregarious and, and, and friendly and connective way, um, yeah. that, you know, w- with that, that type of warmth, I mean, that, that's, that's a life changer there. So you've certainly had an impact on my life and, and on, you know, many others. And I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I'm thankful for you for very similar reasons, but, um, you know, you're mentioning the annual is probably good because I guess as far as how would I want to be remembered as a collector, I mean, I think a lot of it is I would like to be, hopefully when people think of me, they think of the the gregariousness that you mentioned or the warmth for lack of a better term. I don't feel like I've ever been someone who was like a really hard-edged collector and who was just out to get what he could. Um, I, I like to think I've avoided that mostly. Um, I'm sure someone's going to say, no, there's this time you screwed me out of this thing or whatever. Okay. <laughs> sure. And I haven't always been like, sometimes I can be a little bit prickly with people, but for most, I'd like, when people think of me, I'd like to think that they think of me the way you felt going to the annual. Cause I do think that that event, Chris and Steph as well, but because they're, I think on a similar wavelength, but that is certainly an event that um, is kind of imbued with the kind of feeling that I would like to get out of collecting in general. Right. And it's kind of a relaxed, friendly, let's, let's chat and have a discussion sort of relationship among collectors rather than the sort of like, I don't know, there can be a hard edge to, to certain, to certain aspects of the hobby and and that's certainly not something I've ever enjoyed. And so that I think the annual is certainly a reflection of kind of the, the values that I have. And certainly it's shared with Chris and Stephanie, but um, that's a weird comparison to make, but I, I do think that a lot of the, the, 
the image I would like to present or that the way people I would like people to see me is certainly reflected in how I think they would feel when they come to an event like that, which is a very welcoming and kind of a laid back sort of feel. And those are the feelings and memories that really last for years and years afterwards. Um, I, I know, you know, you and I talk about the annual, even the first annual all the time. And, and I just, it, it, it was just one of those, for me, life-changing or, or kind of, you know, life-highlighting moments uh, that I'll just never forget. So uh, I'm, I'm happy that we get to have those. Yeah, and hopefully we'll do more, you know, but I'm glad so many people loved it so much. It was a special event and it did really come across. And I, I think it is because Chris and Steph and I in planning it really did take care to make sure it reflected, you know, our values for stuff. But, you know, that's just kind of the collector I am. Like when I think of my memories and collecting, it's not really what you sometimes think. I mean, sometimes it's, it's the crazy things like, oh, this crazy find and, and drove all night to go find this item. Yeah, sure. You remember that stuff or celebration, but you know, my feelings of celebration, like it's a great event and I've had a lot of great times at celebration, but it's mostly, I think about it. I'm like, Oh God, that was a slog. <laughs> man. Yeah. Um, just thinking about over the last few years, annual aside, like things that I've loved, like I just random stuff, you know, like I just off the top of my head, this just came up to me. Like I went down to Atlanta. We I drove down with Chris and Stephanie Riley. And then we stopped at the Dragulius's place, stayed over with them. And then we drove to Atlanta and to see Tom Derby. And then like Todd Chamberlain drove down the same weekend for something because he had to see Tom and Ben Sheehan was there and we all got together. And I don't, I think just Ben and I were drinking. I don't think anybody else was drinking, but just sitting there, you know, drinking bourbon, sitting outside on the deck in the hotel and just completely laid back, just kind of, you know, talking about life and collecting, you know, that's the kind of thing that I enjoy in collecting. It's just these laid back, you know, friend moments. Um, and, you know, so I guess how would I hope people remember me? Like, I hope they remember hanging out with me in a moment like that. Like, that's <laughs> kind of like talking about whatever, like, not, I don't need to be remembered as a uh, John Kellerman or, or anybody making a huge flash splash but i hope uh it's the friendship stuff that people value the most uh, i think i think you've paved a nice way so far you know for this for this first part of your, your journey so uh <laughs> so if if somebody was coming into the hobby today and the, you know they were they were really excited they love star wars uh and and they you know they wanted to get into collecting um what would you say to them to to guide them oof um I would say don't be intimidated. I know this is like other people have probably said similar stuff. Um, try to engage with people. Um, and don't, I guess it's not an intimidating hobby. I, I know that that's kind of stupid to say, because I, full disclosure, like I engage with other communities that aren't collecting like, and a lot of times, like, I'm just like, I don't know, I'm just a lurker, like, on this forum. You know, I just, like, hang out and lurk, and I'm just like, I'm doing exactly the same thing in this forum that I tell people not to do in Star Wars. So it's like, why why do I do this? But it's like, you know, I understand that sometimes you don't necessarily want to engage. You just kind of want to lurk and read, and that's fine, too. But I would say if you want to be part of um, the community, for lack of a better word, um, or the network of collectors, like, it's not that difficult. Um 
most of the good or the big collectors that you're likely to know of because you've written something that you've read something they wrote or you saw a presentation they did are just really good people. Um, they're not obnoxious. Uh, you know, Duncan Jenkins is one of the biggest collectors around nicest guy you could ever want to meet. Like he's never going to be a jerk to you. Like, unless you like kick him in the shin, he might be a jerk to you. Right. But, um, generally speaking, he's never going to be mean to you. Uh, and the same can be said for most of these people. Um, if you message them or you come up to them, they're probably going to give you the time. Uh, and they're probably not going to look down on you for not knowing what, um, you know, the rarest Admiral Akbar is or whatever. Um, so I'd say don't be intimidated is probably one of the the things I'd say. And I say that a lot of times because our friend Sky Payne, when he he told me the first few times he saw me, he was too intimidated to talk to me. I was like, man, I don't feel like I'm that intimidating. Like, you're intimidating by me. Like, I don't even know how you feel about these other people because I don't feel like I'm particularly intimidating. Um, so, yeah, I would say just don't, you know, don't feel scared of, of reaching out to people because it, it – Almost everybody, I know almost everybody in, in who's been around a long time, and most all of them are, are good people. So, and they're just really nice people too. That's awesome. I, I think that's the best advice you can give. Um, and and I think it's good. You know, I, I think it's good to to have it be repeated and a lot because I think you know people do get intimidated or they they don't know really how to make that first step. And uh, and I I think it is one of those things and. and you and, I, you and I can both attest to this. Um, our lives have changed because of the people that we've met and these, these you know, meetups and adventures that we've gone on all together. And, and there is something really special about it. And, uh, and I think it just makes life a little richer and a little more exciting. So, Yeah, it's, it's way more fun when you have some friends <laughs> and stuff. It's just, it's, it's more fun. Um, you get better stories and whatnot. And yeah, you know, an event like the annual that we had is just, you know, that's just the icing on the cake. You know, you, you can't do stuff like that without a, a good network of solid friends who are, are just want to spend time together and, and kind of chill out. So, Ron, I'm I'm happy and glad to call you my friend. Uh, I'm I'm glad we get to do conversations like this as well. This was a look at the the writings that you did in the first half of the year, and um, we're going to get together to do a, a second part where we look at the writings um, in in the second part of the year. We're going to talk about the annual a little bit. So, um, really, thank you for spending so much time today and uh, and, and taking a ch- you know time out yeah, of your dude, schedule well, to talk. The great thing about you is it doesn't even feel like an interview. It just feels like um, I'm talking to a friend. <laughs> Uh, that's the best part. It's just collector conversations. All right. Well, all right, man. I, I always love talking to you, David. So let, let's catch up soon. And I, I certainly appreciate your interest in this, this kind of silly stuff I've been doing. <laughs> awesome. All right. Stay tuned for more on Star Wars, prototypes and production. Mm-hmm.